Hear the word of God from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. These readings come from the New Revised Standard Version, and you can find this reading on page 822 in the Pew Bible. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. Can you imagine the look on Jesus' face when he heard the request from James and John? When James and John said to Jesus, Hey, uh, Jesus, can we be your favorites? Can we sit right next to you when you come into power? Can't you imagine Jesus rolling his eyes? The look on the other faces of the disciples. Sometimes even the people you love the most can be a little bit annoying. Case in point, I love my daughters. I really do. But they do have a few annoying habits with none more annoying than this thing they constantly argue about called shotgun. You may know what I'm talking about. Whenever the three of us head to the car to go somewhere and I get into the driver's seat, they begin this full-throated competition about who gets to ride shotgun, the, the passenger's side on the front of the car right next to me, which means the other person has to sit in the back seat all by herself. Now, I've never fully understood the benefit of riding shotgun. Maybe they think the front seat has more leg room, even though, frankly, the back seat, I would think, is easier to stretch out when you have the full seat to yourself. Maybe they like having the wide open view of the windshield, even though I'd like to think you'd have a lot more privacy to be on your own in the back. Maybe it's because they are really fighting over who gets to sit next to their awesome father. I don't really know. What I do know is that they have elevated this to a fully charged contest every time. They have established rules for calling shotgun. 
You can't call shotgun until the car is in view. You can't request shotgun unless you do so nicely. They even put on their most angelic voice, Dad, may I please have shotgun? And every time we get out and back into the car, even if it's on the same trip, you get to call shotgun again each time. They argue. They argue about who called it first. They argue about who has gotten shotgun more. They even argue about how to argue about shotgun. But they generally agree on one thing. They don't like how I have learned to answer them. Because after years of hearing them argue about this, I've decided that this game, which started out very cute and adorable when they were much younger, is just annoying. So whenever they ask, even in their sweetest, most angelic voice, Dad, can I please have shotgun? Now I say, I don't care. <laughs> I'm not playing, I said. Or both of you get in the back seat. That's what I like to say to them. Now, I realize the risk of using this story as a sermon illustration. For one thing, I'm shamelessly using my children yet again in a sermon, which only furthers their scarring for life. And yes, I realize that I am equating them to James and John, who are the protagonists in the story, painting my daughters in not such a good light. And yes, I realize that by using this story, I am essentially equating myself with Jesus, which may be the reason I didn't wrestle too much over how to use this story. But anyway, the real question this scripture passage poses for us this morning is, how often do you try to call shotgun in your life? How often do you try to wrestle and elbow your way into a kind of position of prominence at the expense of other people? In other words, here's the question for you and me today. Is it okay for a Christian to be ambitious? Hmm? Is it okay for you and I to be ambitious and still be a follower of Jesus? That's really the compelling question that comes from this scripture passage. James and John were clearly jockeying for a prominent position. If Jesus were the CEO of a company, James and John would be angling for a promotion. Is it wrong for us to do that? If Jesus were a teacher in a classroom, James and John would be kissing up for brownie points. Is that wrong? If Jesus were the coach of a team, James and John would be making a case for a starting job. Is there anything wrong with that? Is it wrong to be ambitious? What should a Christian's relationship be with ambition? Now we can acknowledge that if ambition were wrong, if ambition were sinful, then you and I would be utterly guilty. And so would likely a lot of Christians. Does God want us to be mediocre in what we do? Surely not. Does God want us to stop striving to advance in our careers and our lot in life and in our lives in general? Surely not. 
When Jesus said that greatness comes from servanthood, what did he mean? I like what Rachel Held Evans says. She's a popular blogger, a Christian blogger, one of popular Christianity's more prominent authors. And I like what she said on the topic. She said, as Christians, we are not called to succeed or to fail, but rather to keep our success and failure in perspective. What she means by that is that it's not success or failure that ought to be our chief criteria to evaluate our lives. It's the value that we assign to our success and our failure that should be our primary concern. This is what she says. The reality is, for most of us, both success and failure are a part of life. And it is for life that Jesus has equipped us. So he has prepared us to see success for what it is. Sometimes the result of faithfulness and hard work, sometimes not. Used rightly to glorify God and care for his creation, or sometimes used wrongly to glorify ourselves. It is a tool. Success is a tool that we can use wisely or foolishly. And the same goes for failure, by the way. What she says is this, As Christians who worship a crucified and risen Lord, we of all people know that failure too can be a gift, a refining fire, a way to focus on what really matters, to identify with Jesus. God causes rain to fall both on the evil and the good, and so we are all bound to succeed and fail at some point in our lives. I like what she says. Because the bottom line is this. In God's eyes, it is not about whether we succeed or fail at something, whether we advance and get promoted at something. It is more about how we never let our success or our failures frame our view of ourselves or our worth or our relationship with God. That's the primary concern. Jesus responded to James and John by saying, you don't know what you're asking. Which really is a way of saying, you've got your perspective on success and failure completely upside down. Here's another thing. Life, life is not primarily defined by whether you succeed or fail. It's primarily defined by whether or not you glorify God. I really love what Jesus says to James and John. Look, guys, he says. He doesn't say look, guys. But he says, to sit at my right or left hand isn't mine to give. It belongs to those for whom it has been prepared. Basically, what he is saying to these shotgun squabbling siblings is this. I don't care. I don't care which one of you gets shotgun. It's not mine to decide. Because ultimately, it's not about you. Do you know who it's about, James and John? Well, the Apostle Paul does. In Colossians 3.17, Paul says, Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, whatever you do, be done in the name of the Master, Jesus, thanking God the Father every step of the way. 
It's not about you. Your success and your failure may have come from the works of your hands, but ultimately it is not about you. For a follower of Jesus, it is always about glorifying God. So here's the question. How can you channel your ambition? How can you channel the fruit of your work to glorify God? In your work life, in your personal life, in your leisure life, how can you do everything to glorify God? Well, let me give you a couple practical ways. Number one, do your work with honesty. Do your work with integrity and decency. Both in the ways that you do your job at work, as well as the ethical standards you follow when no one else is looking. Do your job without shortcuts. Number two, do your job with gratitude. It means that while your success may be credited to your hard work, to your diligence and to your faithfulness and your skill sets and your dedication. Remember, all of what enables you to do is originally a gift from God. Nothing you can do is apart from what God has given you. So that means you should be grateful to God for everything. I think it also means offering to God the fruit of your work, the money that you earn as a result of your work, as a sort of first fruits offering to God. One of the key criteria that you can use to evaluate whether or not your success and your ambition is more about you or more about God is to evaluate the value that you assign to the money and how you spend the money that you earn. And the Bible is very clear. If you want to get your heart right with God, you have to get your finances right with God. Or as a clergy friend of mine says, you can't have God first in your heart, but not in your wallet. Everyone wants God in their hearts, with their kids and in the schools and in our nation. But the last place we want God is in our wallets. You want to know your relationship with success and ambition? How do you evaluate how you're spending your money? Are you giving it to God? As you receive your pledge card for 2019 and as you make your financial contributions toward the end of this year, this is a way that you can prioritize your success in a way that glorifies God. If you're not tithing, then work toward a tithe. If you're not pledging, turn in a pledge. If you're currently pledging, then increase it. Make your work glorify God. But here's the last practical thing that I think we can think about in terms of glorifying God with our work. That no matter what your line of work is, whether it is in the job force or in the home, God is calling you to make a difference in the lives of other people. One important way to glorify God is to love all of God's children. Ultimately, this is exactly what Jesus tells James and John. He says, Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. See, James and John had it all wrong. They had it all wrong. When they were asking for a blessing from Jesus, they had it all wrong. What they forgot is that in the Bible... 
Whenever a person is blessed, it is not for them, it is through them. We are not created to receive a blessing. That's not why we're here. We are not created to receive a blessing. We are created to be a blessing. We are not called to be a container of God's blessing. We are called to be conduits of God's blessing. And the ultimate value of your life will not be measured by the number of successes you achieve, but how you touch the lives of others. And how much you love God and love everyone. And how much you are willing to lay aside your ambitions and your drive to success for the betterment of other people. In the book Written in Blood, author Robert Coleman includes the moving story of a little boy and his sister. They had been diagnosed with a dreaded disease. And the little boy had been delivered from that disease through an immunization therapy that had delivered him from death. He had been immunized against that illness, but that same therapy did not work for his sister. So the doctor, realizing that the little girl needed a transfusion of, of the boy's blood, a fair amount of it, called the boy aside and asked him if he would be willing to let that happen. The doctor asked the boy, would you give your blood? And the little boy's lips trembled, hesitated for a moment. And he looked out the window, and then he thought for a good long time. And then he replied, yeah, I'll do it. They took the brother and the sister into a room, and the blood began to be transferred, and it was like a miracle. Almost instantaneously, life came into his sister's body. And after a while, the doctor came in. And the little boy looked up at that doctor and asked him, So when do I die? When do I die? The doctor realized at that moment why the boy's lips had trembled and why he had anguished over this decision because he thought he was going to die when all the doctor wanted was a little bit of blood. But that little boy had made the decision to give his own life so that his sister would live. Now before we chalk up this little story as a cute little fable about a naive little boy, let us be jarred by the fact that this is exactly what Jesus was telling James and John. These two siblings who were squabbling over one-upsmanship, Jesus was telling them that it is a calling for us to be a blessing to other people. There is no greater calling than to set those ambitions aside to glorify God and to serve other people. There is nothing wrong with success or achievement, but when that drive to succeed and achieve supersedes our willingness and our ability to glorify God and to love other people, then that's when we need to have our priorities turned upside down. To be great, we must serve. To be first, we must be the least of all. That's the upside-down life. Let's pray together.
God, we thank you for giving us drive and ambition to be better than we currently are. But forgive us for the ways that we fail to channel that ambition, the way we fail to glorify you with our own commitments to honesty and love and offering to you the gifts of our financial resources and our time. Help us, Lord, to put you first above ourselves, to love and serve others even when it costs us greatly. And help us dare to imagine that if all of us assumed servanthood in our character, that we might spark a transformation in our communities and even in the world. Thank you, God, for calling us to not ride shotgun at the expense of others, but to always allow you first seat in our lives. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and let all God's people say.